0: Church, this morning I ask you, who's your one? Who's the one person you're close to who's not close to the Lord? I've been so encouraged by hearing your stories of faithful prayer and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with that one person that the Lord has laid on your heart. Let me remind you this morning that Jesus has always received mixed reviews. There are some people who receive him and other people who reject him, but the gospel call goes out to all. And the gospel call that Jesus invites us to proclaim is one of complete commitment and sacrificial surrender. In other words, we follow Jesus at all cost. Throughout this sermon series, we've been examining one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with various people throughout his ministry. Today is no different. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 18. I want to read verses 18 to 30 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 18, I'll begin at verse 18 and I'll conclude at verse 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man with great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, which is eternal life. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This man's story is told in three out of the four Gospels. Each gospel writer seems to give us greater clarity to the persona of this individual. It is Matthew who tells us he was young. It is Mark who speaks of his sincerity when he says that he ran up to Jesus and fell at the feet of the Savior. It is Luke who tells us that this rich young man was a ruler. When Luke says that he's a ruler, I don't think he means necessarily that he's a political ruler or even a synagogue ruler. But what he's saying is that this man is a mover and a shaker. He's a decision maker in the town. So in other words, we are introduced to a person who has everything life has to offer. He has youth. He has limitless wealth. He has powerful influence. In other words, he has everything that most people spend a lifetime to achieve and maintain. Yet, even though this one who seemed to have everything lacked something, it was a deficiency in his soul. It was a nagging question that drove him to the feet of Jesus Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, inherent in that question, there is an embedded flaw. The flaw is that this man assumed that salvation could be humanly achieved. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It may have been better phrased had he said, what must I believe or what must I accept to receive eternal life? But he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus can't even get past the first word. He quickly, sharply rebukes him saying, why do you call me good? The response of Jesus might sound a little snippy, perhaps even to some. It appears rude until we realize That Jesus understands this man has just demoted him. The rich young ruler is like a lot of people in his day and many people in our day. He's a person who is not quite ready to exalt Jesus as Christ. At the same time, he doesn't want to defame Jesus as historically irrelevant. So he simply strikes the middle ground. He tries to stay in the middle lane, he simply tries to call him a good teacher. And Jesus acknowledges that this is a demotion. For if you just glance at the gospel, you will discover that Jesus knows his identity. The rich young ruler doesn't know the identity of Jesus. Your one may not know the identity of Jesus, but Jesus knows his own identity. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is very clear that he is God. He's not another God, a creation of God, a lesser God. He is truly God. It's not that Jesus is merely a good man. He's the God man. He is the one and only God man. And so when this individual comes to Jesus asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, realizing that he just called him a good teacher, Jesus seems to be offended at this because Jesus is always offended whenever anybody demotes him. And what's true of Jesus ought to be true of Jesus' followers. You and I ought to be offended when the culture demotes Jesus. We ought to be offended when people make less of Jesus. Because if you know who Jesus is, if you know that he is the mighty Messiah, the massive redeemer, if you know that he is Christ, then you realize that anything less than the exaltation of Jesus is unacceptable. Because as you read the gospel story, you understand that Jesus He's either cosmic king or a cosmic con. There's no middle ground. I mean, he's either lord or a liar. He's either lovable or laughable. He's either holy or a hypocrite. There's no middle ground. We can't just say he's a cut above the average person. We cannot just say he's just a good teacher. No, he is Christ. This is why Jesus said there is no one good except God alone. Jesus engages this rich young ruler in a conversation. Once he gets past the reality that this man had just demoted him, he gives him a few of the Ten Commandments. You and I would recognize them as mostly being on the right side of the tablet. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Don't steal. Don't lie, which is bear false testimony, and honor your father and mother. The rich young ruler says if that's it if that's all it takes to be saved if that's all it takes to have entrance into god's kingdom punch my ticket i've done those things since i was a boy for him to say that he had kept all these since a boy is to say that since the age of 12 he had demonstrated a great deal of morality he had demonstrated a great deal of obedience to the law of god i have kept all those since i was a boy. Now, this man, he might be arrogant, but it may just be that he's ignorant. Maybe he's never heard the Sermon on the Mount. That's the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. Some of you may recall that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus internalizes the commands that were otherwise understood as external Jesus said things like, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Yet I say, don't even look upon a woman lustfully. You've heard it said, do not murder. Yet I say, don't even get angry with your brother. Is this rich young ruler trying to say that he has been perfectly obedient to the law of God since he was 12 years of age? Is he trying to say that he's never been guilty of lust, never been guilty of anger, never been guilty of telling a a, a minuscule lie? Is he actually trying to say that he's never done any of those things? Maybe this guy's arrogant. Maybe. Maybe he's just ignorant. But the reality is that as we look at him, he has a lot going for him, doesn't he? I mean, he is arrogant, but who among us isn't? He is ignorant. Once again, who among us isn't? Those are some of those common flaws, right? I mean, all of us have areas where we are arrogant and prideful. All of us have areas where we are ignorant and have a lack of knowledge. I mean, that's kind of common throughout everybody. But as you look at this man, He's got a lot going for him. I mean, apparently, he never sowed his wild oats. Apparently, this man doesn't have a wild past. Maybe this man in his teenage years, he, he never was rebellious and raunchy. I mean, this is the kind of guy that we would want to chaperone our students to camp. This is the type of individual that you would want to coach Sally's softball team. This is the kind of person that that we would want to teach seventh grade science in junior high. I mean, this is a young man who has pretty much everything going for him. Um, This is somebody who we would admire, we would look up to. I mean, he is a responsible 30-something I mean, he is a responsible millennial, right? I mean, this is the kind of guy that we would say, yes, we want you to be a member of our church, and yes, we want you to serve, and yes, we want you to coach, and yes, we want you to teach, and yes, we want you to be involved. I mean, sure, he may be a little arrogant. He might be a little ignorant, but we can get past all that. This is a guy who has a lot going for him. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing sell your possessions give money to the poor come follow me friends those words of jesus ought to strike fear in all of our hearts especially in the american culture is jesus giving a universal command that in order to follow him all of us have to sell our goods give money to the poor and then come follow him? Is Jesus declaring that abject poverty is a necessary requirement for salvation? Because if that's the case, then all of us really, in this very moment, we, we need to examine our life closely. Because while some of us might be generous, I don't know very many of us who have sold all of our possessions, given the resources to the poor, and then said, yes, now we're gonna get ready to come and follow Christ. Is this what Jesus is asking? Is this what Jesus is demanding? Is he making a universal statement for all of us? If he is, he is saying something that no scribe would have said in the first century. For scribes and Pharisees declared that abject poverty was worse than all of the Egyptian plagues. In fact, the scribes suggested that the temple should not take any more than 20% of a person's income. For if you take more than 20%, then you just might spiral that individual into poverty and then that person would become a burden to society and a burden to the temple and the work of God in that area. So the scribes and Pharisees said that poverty is something that needs to be avoided at all costs if possible. And we ought not to take any more than 20% Of a person's income. If Jesus is saying that abject poverty is necessary for salvation, he's saying something that no scribe, no Pharisee would say. And if he's saying that poverty is part and parcel with being a Christian, then you and I really have to examine our life. Because if this individual is regarded as rich in the Bible, how would the Bible regard us? Let's think about it. I'm aware of what happened this past week. Yet even still, for the vast majority of us, we came to church today in a vehicle. And that vehicle will be ready for you to go back home after church is over. And for the vast majority, we will go back to our house. A house that has air conditioning in the summer and it has heat in the winter We will stare at a square box hanging on the wall and it will give countless hours of entertainment all the day long. And when we're ready to get something to eat or or get a cold drink, we'll go to an ice box and we'll find refrigerated drink and food that doesn't spoil When we go into a room, we'll flip on a switch and the room will light up. And when necessary, we can utilize the indoor plumbing that we have installed in our houses. And all of us can say a hearty amen. Thank you, Jesus. Right? And so we have all of that. All those things this rich young ruler did not have in Luke 18. If he is regarded as rich, how would the Bible describe us? think the Bible will say we are crazy rich Americans right I mean we are filthy rich we are stinky rich now don't misunderstand me wealth is not evil wealth is not a problem so long as it's not a problem in your life next week we're going to examine the life of Zacchaeus it's the very next story in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel Some of you remember the story of Zacchaeus. I don't want to spoil it all for next Sunday, but I will tell you that he was a wee little man, right? And Zacchaeus desperately needed a relationship with Jesus. And when he encountered Jesus, everything changed. His glad heart led to a generous wallet. Now, don't get me wrong. Zacchaeus wasn't saved because he gave away a large sum of money. He gave away a large sum of money because he was saved. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possession to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. All throughout the Bible, uh, the Bible talks about numerous rich, wealthy individuals, people like Zacchaeus or Job or Abraham, just to name a few. And the problem is not wealth. The problem is not your possessions. The problem is if you're possessed by your possessions. One of my preaching professors was a great godly man by the name of Haddon Robinson. And Robinson would tell us, um, money and wealth is like flypaper. The fly lands on the paper and says, gotcha. Only to discover moments later that the flypaper says to the fly, no, I've got you. That's like money. It's not a problem for you to have it so long as it doesn't have you. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, one thing you lack, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. Friend, is this a universal requirement? The short answer is no. Jesus does not say abject poverty is a requirement to following him. Oh, but before I let you off the hook, can I remind you? that Jesus taught more about money than any other single subject. He taught about money 25% of his teaching. One out of every four stories has something to do with money. Why? Because Jesus knows that the way we handle our money will pretty much determine the way we handle the Messiah. So in our story, Jesus says to this rich young ruler, "Um, I've identified an issue in your life. You're gripped by your own greed. So in order for you to come and follow me, to be completely committed unto me, and to uh, have sacrificial surrender unto me, you must sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. It is Matthew and Mark who tell us that the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. He rejected Jesus. There are some people who will receive Jesus wholeheartedly. There are other people who will reject him. Some of your ones will receive Jesus, praise the Lord. Some of your ones will reject him. Some of your ones just might walk away because they're not willing to give all that Jesus requires. This rich young ruler was willing to give Jesus his morality. He was willing to give Jesus his marriage if he had one. He was willing to give Jesus his relationships. He was willing to give Jesus even some of his time, but he couldn't stomach the notion of giving all of his stuff to the Savior. He was not willing to lose what he had gained in order to gain what he could not lose. If you're anything like me, it's at this moment that you want to uh, pull the rich young ruler aside and ask him a question. You want to ask him, Do you not know that in mere seconds, all of your worldly treasure can be reduced down to a pile of rubble? Sir, do you not know this? Do you not know that everything that you're clinging to, all the things that you think are important in your life, that one storm can take it all away? But what Jesus is offering you is something that no storm can blow away. What Jesus is offering to give you is something that is eternal. And you want to say to the rich young ruler, why are you walking away? If you know Jesus personally, friend, if you know him as your Savior and Lord, if you know that he's worth it, then you want to ask the rich young ruler, why are you walking away? Why? Please reconsider. Please think about this. Because what you're clinging to is something that will not last It can be taken from you in the blink of an eye. The rich young ruler walked away because Jesus had identified an idol in his life that he was not willing to smash. An idol is anything, anybody who takes your attention or your affection off of Jesus. That's an idol. An idol can be anything. An idol can be anybody who takes your attention and takes your affection off of Jesus. It's something in your life that rivals for the supremacy of your life. It's something that rivals your supremacy in your mental thought, your energy, your activity. It's something that you think about all the time. It's something that you pour effort into all the time. It's anything, it's anybody that rivals Jesus and the Jesus that deserves your affection and your attention. Because Jesus will not take second place to anybody. Friend, as we are presenting this gospel, do not water it down. Don't demote Jesus. You be very clear as you communicate this gospel to your one, that what Jesus is requiring of you is the same thing he requires of me. Everything, because he deserves it. Jesus requires complete commitment and sacrificial surrender. Nothing else will do. The only place that's the rightful place for Jesus is first place in your life. Let's use another analogy. Jesus will not take a back seat in the car of your life. He's gotta be in the driver's seat. He doesn't even want you to put him in the passenger seat while you drive throughout life. No, Jesus wants to be the one who is guiding your life. He deserves first place. He deserves to be in the driver's seat of your life. And Jesus identifies this man's idol. I told you earlier that Jesus doesn't require all of us to sell our possessions, give the money to the poor, and come and follow him. But what he does require of all of us is that we identify our idol, we smash it, and we come and follow him. Sneaky thing about an idol, an idol is usually a good thing that we morph into a God thing. For some people, an idol is a family member. Sometimes we idolize our children, don't we? We almost worship the ground that they walk on. We put all of our energy and all of our effort into our children. Everything in the home is centered around the child and that child's activities. We not only meet the needs of the child, but also the greeds of the child. We do everything we possibly can to make sure that our son and our daughter has everything that they want. The evidence that some husbands and wives, moms and dads, that they uh, idolize their children is because once that final child leaves home, the divorce rate is astronomical. It seems that there are far too many families that are so child-centered that once that child leaves, the husband and wife look at each other and say, who are you? I don't think I like you. Then they up and leave because uh, the husband, the wife, the mom, the dad didn't have a Christ-centered home and a child-centered home. They didn't work on their relationship with God or with one another. Everything was poured into the child. And then when the child leaves, everything deteriorates. Sometimes a, a child can become an idol. You also know this to be true because maybe you've heard stories of when a child is given that horrible news of a terminal illness, it prompts some moms and dads not to run to God, but to run away from God. They don't cling to Christ. They get angry at Christ. Why? Because they believe that Jesus is taking away their precious idol. An idol is a good thing, that it can become a God thing. For other people, an idol just might be a relationship A relationship that is so important, and it needs to be important, but all the mental energy and all the effort is poured into that relationship, and everything dictates and dominates that relationship. And Jesus has been shelved. Jesus has been sidelined. And friend, all you got to do is read the story of the rich young ruler to understand that Jesus does not like to be shelved. Jesus does not like to be sidelined. He does not like to be demoted. Because sometimes we can even take a good thing like a relationship and make it into a God thing. And still, other people, as you look into this story, it's a mirror that reflects exactly who you are. Some of us suffer with the same idol as the rich young ruler. It's wealth. And so we want and we covet that job or that lifestyle, that car, that truck, that boat, that house that socioeconomic status, and that's what we want, and that's what we achieve, that's what we work towards until we get it. That's a rich young ruler. And if Jesus were to come into your life and, and prompt you to downsize, if Jesus were to come into your life and, and take a possession from you, that you would not cling to Christ, you'd get angry with Christ. This man walked away sad because he had great wealth. What I find intriguing is that Jesus did not go after him, did he? He didn't plead with the man. He didn't try to negotiate with him saying, hey, you can have some of your idols and still have some of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the hound from heaven. He does pursue us. He pursues us with a holy love. He, re- he pursues us with a reckless abandon. He pursues his own. But people who reject Jesus and they say we want to cling to our idol. Jesus doesn't plead with them. Jesus has never negotiated with one sinner. Jesus says, I'll give all that I am for you and I'll demand all of you are for me. That I will give you everything in order to accomplish your salvation and in return, it's a free gift that will cost you everything that you got. But it's worth it. It's worth it. This man um, walked away sad. He was still in earshot when Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. All the disciples, they said, how can this be? This doesn't make any sense. Maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've heard sermons from this story. There have been a lot of people that try to describe this notion of an eye of a. Of a needle that the camel going through an eye of a needle what is that and some have said that there in the ancient city there was a hole in the wall that was called the eye of a needle in order for a camel to go into the city that camel had to uh, stoop and scoot and shimmy and shake his way through that little bitty crevice that little hole the eye of a needle and friend I want to tell you that if a camel wanted to go into the city That camel would not go through a hole in the wall. That camel would go through the door of the gate that was right there to the entrance of the city. This is not a hole in the wall. Jesus is making an analogy of extremes. The largest Palestinian animal was a camel. The smallest known hole was that of the eye of a sewing needle. And Jesus was being comical. He was being humorous. He was being absurd when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man clinging to his stuff to be gained entrance into the kingdom of God. It's an analogy of extremes. It's it's absurd. I mean, there's no shot for a camel to go through an eye of a sewing needle. And Jesus says in the same way, there's no shot of a rich man clinging to his wealth in order to gain access into God's kingdom. It was Daryl Bach who said, wealth has a way of reducing the door of heaven down to an impassable peephole. And I would say to Daryl Bach, not only is it wealth, but it's any idol. Anything that we cling to Any person, anything that we clutch and cling to that strips away our attention and our affection that needs to be squarely placed upon Jesus, any idol will reduce the door of heaven down to an impassable peephole. The disciples say to Jesus, how can this be? They have been taught all their life. Worldly wealth is a sure sign of divine blessing. If they saw a rich fat cat, they said, well, surely that person's going to heaven because God has blessed that man, God has blessed that woman with financial wealth. And even today, 2,000 years later, we sometimes have the same kind of terminology. We'll see somebody who is well-to-do, and we will say, that person is blessed. And we'll equate the blessing of God with financial resources. The disciples were no different. They said, we've always been told that if a person is wealthy, that's a sure sign of God's blessing. It's Peter who says, if that man cannot be saved, then who can? I mean, if that man's not getting into heaven, who is? Because we don't have everything. In fact, we have, we have given everything away. We don't have anything to our name. We've left it all Jesus to follow you. And I think it's at that moment that Jesus says with a smile on his face to Peter, to Andrew, to James and John, all the other disciples, listen, anyone who has left houses, homes, time away from wife and children, parents, other family members, anyone who has sacrificed some comfort for the sake of the gospel, I want you to know, It'll be repaid in this life and a life to come, eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, listen, friend, any perceived sacrifice that you've offered up for the kingdom, it hasn't gone unnoticed. God's recognized it. God remembers. God knows. I don't want to tell you that God repays dollar for dollar. I mean, you give God a 1,000 bucks, he's going to give you 1,000 bucks. I mean, I've heard the stories, you've heard the stories of people that go to their mailbox and they open up, wow, there it is, the money, right? I've never had that happen to me. Maybe you've had it happen to you. But I don't know that in God's kingdom he repays dollar for dollar, but this much I do know is true, that God's word can be trusted. That Jesus just simply said, look, any perceived sacrifice that you've had, any, anything that you were going to use for your own comfort, but you have given it for the work of God, any time away from those that are precious to you, your wife, your children, your family, anything that you sacrificed for the kingdom of God, God notices, and God will reward. It may not be dollar for dollar, minute for minute, but God will reward. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that, listen, Um, The two things that will most rival for supremacy in your life over the Savior are finances and family. Finances and family. Think about it. Those are the two things that we spend most of our time and energy and effort giving to. And so we think about finances, we think about family all the time, all the time, all the time. And Jesus in this story is showing us that those two things are the two most popular, prominent things that rival for supremacy in your life. And Jesus, once again, is saying to anybody who will listen, the call of the gospel upon your life is a call for complete commitment, for sacrificial surrender. At the end of this teaching, the disciples just say, how can this be? I mean, this this, just doesn't make sense. Jesus, you're blowing our minds, and you're blowing the sandals off of our feet. Jesus, how is this possible? And Jesus says, with men, it's impossible. It doesn't make sense. But with God, all things are possible. What I came this morning to remind you is that God is able What's impossible in this world is possible with God. For those of you who have suffered through an F3 tornado and your worldly treasures have been blown away, listen, I want to tell you, God is able. For those of you who did not uh, lose anything in the storm, but yet you have something to give to somebody else, I want to tell you, God is able. I just came this morning just to remind you that the God that we serve, he is able When stress is through the roof, God is able. When circumstances are overwhelming, God is able. When sin is embarrassing, God is able. When situations are bleak, God is able. When pain is overwhelming, God is able. When Jesus rides triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem the last week of his life, to the thunderous applause of the crowd, only to hear that crowd a few days later say, crucify him and his dead body is placed to a grave all day Friday and all day Saturday. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus gets up out of the grave all to prove that God is able. I came this morning just to remind you, church, that we serve a God who's able to make a way when there's no way. We serve a God who is able to help when there's a helpless situation. We serve a God who gives hope in the midst of hopelessness. I came this morning to tell you that God is able. (laughs) Humanly, it might seem impossible, whatever you're going through, but with God, all things are possible. This one who gave all that he is to secure your salvation. Ask in return that you give unto him all that you are because he deserves nothing less. The call of the gospel upon you, upon me, upon your one, upon my one, the call of the gospel is a call for complete commitment, and sacrificial surrender because God is able. If you're here this morning and you never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, today I implore you, today I plead with you to come and trust Jesus as Christ. Do not walk away sad because you'd rather cling to your idol than cling to Christ. This morning I invite you to come. Maybe you're here today and you are saved. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus, but idols have a sneaky way of creeping back into our life. And today you want to bring that idol in a symbolic way here to the altar and smash it before the Lord. And you want to follow him wholeheartedly. Maybe you're here today and that one person is being so heavily impressed upon your spirit. And today, you just want to once again come and pray and say, God, I've identified my one. I'm praying for my one. Please give me the courage to get over the awkwardness of talking about Jesus. Because, friend, I want to tell you, the more you talk about Jesus, the easier it becomes to talk about Jesus. And your one needs to hear that this gospel is a call for complete commitment and sacrificial surrender. And if they say, no, no, that's too much, just remind them that we serve a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. He is able because he is worth it. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation Lord, we ask for you to move in our hearts and our minds, motivate us to smash our idols, to cling to Christ, to look for ways to talk to our one about you. Oh, Father, help us, we pray. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.